Hard Fix Network. Well, hello, listeners, and welcome to Studio A. You are listening to The Interview Show, your home for entertaining and insightful discussions on all manner of topics. And here's the host of the show, Chris Green. Thank you, Tommy. Today's guest is the creator of Bubble Magic, an act he's been performing for almost 50 years. He's appeared on That's Incredible, The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, The Late Show with David Letterman, and performed on stages around the world. He's a true pioneer in entertainment. Please welcome Tom Noddy. Hey, Tom, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Chris. Good to be here. Yeah, we really do appreciate you joining us. One of my favorite things in life is when you dig more deeply into something that you've encountered and quickly discover that there's more to it than you expected. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I don't know if you have any examples in your life about things like that. Oh, yeah, it's, it's endless. Scientists are talking about it all the time. They look down at the, the leaf and they end up in the cells and they end up in the minute, smaller parts. It keeps going. It's endless. Yeah, it's it's quite the rabbit trail oftentimes. Many people make this mistake, but you're not just the bubble guy from a YouTube video of uh, The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. The truth is, you have a rich backstory, and that's exactly what we're going to uncover today. Oh, yeah, there we go. I'd like to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> well, in that case, let's begin here. In your own words, tell us who you are and describe your act. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm the bubble guy. Um, I do... Uh, uh, I, I, yeah, actually, let me tell you the the opening to my show that I, I typically do. Just to kind of, it's it's not typical of the the energy for the rest of my show, but it's a good spiel to answer your question. I tell the audience that I uh, I put bubbles inside of bubbles, smoke bubbles, clear bubbles, clear bubbles inside of smoke bubbles, smoke bubbles inside of clear bubbles, inside out bubbles, yin yang bubbles, caterpillar bubbles, love bubbles, and bubble cube. And the yin yang bubble is a double bubble, a smoke bubble, and a clear bubble, the clear bubble, and the smoke bubble, smoke bubble, and the clear bubble. It's my most difficult trick to say. <laughs> so that's the main thing I do. It looks a lot, you know, on radio, on on podcasting. It's a little bit because a friend for years have told me they they really man show my friend the bubbles. I've been trying to tell him you're so hard to explain. You know, when people don't get visuals, I, happily the internet has made that easier because they can just send video clips. Um, but in words. It kind of looks like a magic act. There's a guy standing in one spot, hopefully well-dressed, uh, with a tripod stand. And on the stand, instead of a, a top hat or something, I have a, a couple of jars of bubbles. And a um, uh, well, nowadays, I have a, a very tiny fog-making device. But otherwise, that's it. It's a guy standing there with you know not a lot of props uh, just uh, creating these uh, these forms with soap bubbles and doing things to them and then kind of joking I'm, I'm a bit funny and uh, uh i get from one end to the act uh, to the other depending on what kind of show i'm in sometimes i'll do an hour at a science uh, museum where i talk about the physics and the how-to of bubbles they're studied at the highest levels mathematics and, and physics. And sometimes I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a four minute act, a five minute act in a variety show with the juggler is next and trapeze artist is after that. Um, so that's, that's what I do for a living. I blow bubbles. <laughs> I like it that you can boil it down to something so simple, but it's actually so much more. Oh, thank you. <laughs> okay. We'll dig into the details of some of those things a little bit later on, but where are you from originally? Originally in New Jersey, uh, Patterson, New Jersey. What kind of a kid were you were growing up? Yeah, I was kind of a daydreamy kid. You know, I did, I did, uh, I got good. I was good at school. They, I got good grades at school, but they, they complained. The teachers complained that I was uh, a, a daydream. I specifically remember one teacher telling my mom. Her, her complaint was, you know, teachers, I think they, they must teach them in teaching college or something to watch for the daydreamers, you know, the ones who are staring out the window. And I was, I mean, I was flying over the playground. I was swooping down on the other, you know, I was just daydreaming. Okay, so you did well enough in school to get by, but as you were staring out the window, what were you thinking about? What kind of things were you interested in? 
Um, well, yeah, you know, you, you, you've read Calvin and Hobbes, you know, and uh, and he would become micro, and he would be he'd be walking on the ceiling stuff. I was really that 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 kind of thing. I was changing the matter, you know, the the the, the playing field were in all the time i was like i said uh, flying sometimes and uh and then shrinking down and walking in that shag carpet what would that mean man i'd have to climb over some of them in between a few of them you know i kept i just kept drifting around with what matter they were presenting you just had a wild imagination that took you all kinds of places yeah but i think i think kids do i think uh, I, I was maybe a little uh, blatant to the to the grown up world that I was doing that, but I think I never met a kid that didn't completely understand the world under the table, <laughs> between the legs, and you know, and, and and the lava on the on the floor as you got to go from one piece of furniture to the other without stepping down there. Yeah, you know, I, I, kids all lived in that world. They all did. Were your parents supportive and encouraging and nurturing in these things, or did they struggle with that? Yeah, no, they didn't get it, but uh, but I was getting good grades, you know. I was the the first one in my in my family to go to college, you know. So they were impressed by that. Okay, he's smart because that's good because he he really doesn't know how to handle tools. So <laughs> 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 that'll he'll have to make his living some other way, and he is getting good grades. Where did you go to college? Uh, Memphis, Memphis, uh, Tennessee. Okay, what's your parents' background? What do they do for a living? Uh, my father was a truck driver. He worked in factories. He, he repaired machines in factories and such. My mom, my mom mostly stayed home. She did some waitressing later and stuff. Did you have any siblings? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I grew up with uh, one brother who was a year older than me. Actually, five days less than a year older than me. They sometimes say Irish twins, you know, sure. born within the same year. <laughs> uh, and I have a sister that was one year younger than me, and then few others and a year mostly a year apart but because we traveled and we were always kind of the the new kids in school and that tightened the bond between us we 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 stayed pretty tight through the whole thing because we were we were the only ones we knew in town (laughs) and how did your brothers and sisters personalities compare to yours my brother was the oldest he took that seriously my parents put that on him a bunch and uh and he, he he tried to, you know, run the show, which I actually appreciated because, again, I was pretty drifty. <laughs> so, um, uh, so, so later when we started hanging out and, you know, and, and, and Patterson, Patterson could be a, a pretty tough town. It's kind of a, a, a black ghetto and then there's the white and immigrant ghettos around it. And it's kind of, it's kind of tough. So he hung out with, you know, bad guys and then fighting and stealing things. And I would hang out with them too, because, well, not because I was like really good at that, but I was Johnny's brother. <laughs> so, so I could hang with the bad guys and then you know, try and look the part and stuff and fight the guys I had to fight because there's kind of a pecking order that has to be established, but I didn't have to fight, you know, everybody, but so, but interesting thing about my brother, though, I always, I don't know where he got it, but he seemed to have a, his own innate moral sense, even though we might, you know, if we went by a car that wasn't, that wasn't locked and there's some stuff in it, we might take it, you know, but if it was locked for some reason, if it was locked, he, he and, and the other guys were like, let's break into the car. No, no, no. My brother, I don't know where he got that from. No, we never do. Tommy, come on with me. Let's go. We don't pull it. And we, I, he'd walk away. There was, there were, the, he had these lines he drew, and I was just kind of like, yeah, okay, let's go to this thing. Let's go to the next thing. We're, oh, we're gonna break. Okay. No, come with me. And so I, I think he kind of guided me. He had a bit of a code. Yeah, he had a code. It wasn't always the moral code your parents might hope that, <laughs> that you would have. But he had these lines and he drew them and he, and it kept me from going further with these guys that otherwise I wouldn't even be hanging out with if not for him. But once I was there, it's good that he was keeping an eye out for us. And how did your sister figure into things? Well, my, uh, my, the sister, uh, a year younger than me, she was, uh, 
you know, I, we still we still talk about it. I was Batman to her Robin. If I wasn't with with my brother John, and I was running, dun, 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 I had a bat cave. I had places where I hid my stuff, and, and but she would come with me, and I'd get her up onto the. I knew a way up to the roof. We could jump from one roof to the other. I almost killed my little sister a number of times. But I, and there's the trees, and, and we had adventures and bikes, and everything was you know this imagination thing where we were saving things. We were um so she was my uh my mascot my sidekick my partner she's accused of having been really girly as a, as a child but i know better i know that she was with me and we were on adventures you were co-conspirators we were exactly that yeah yeah it was kids versus the world far as i could tell hey that sounds good to me <laughs> so what i want to understand is is when did you discover you were a performer, or when did you start experimenting with soap bubbles? Was did it start off as a scientific curiosity? Did you always want to perform in front of people? Where, where did that take root? Where did that come from? Well, well, the real root, because I don't want to say this because you had me down in kid zone. Um, in those days, you know, when we went to bed and we were all supposed to be quiet, now um, I was I was a storyteller. I think that was a background for me. I. I I was others thought so too. They thought that I was good at telling stories. And that makes sense because your act kind of I mean you're certainly funny and you're performing a kind of a scientific thing, but it also has a narrative. You're kind of you kind of are walking people through it in that way. Yeah, you know, I was a hippie. I went to college for a couple of years in Memphis and then uh, I was a history major. I was really interested in that. And then and then I became politically active. My, my my roommate was a, a black guy from Mississippi, and, and and civil rights was an important issue. The war in Vietnam became an important issue. I went to college in '67, so uh, then I was really interested in the history. But then Martin Luther King came to town in '68 and was shot, and killed there in Memphis while I was there. History it came to the street came became real it just became too real and the classroom version of it became less interest to me i i needed to go out into the world i dropped out in 69 um i put my thumb out and hitchhiked around for a good long while um and eventually i wanted to do the same in europe i wanted to get myself to europe hitchhike around see crete and see sweden and see the UK. And, um, so I didn't have any money. My parents didn't have any money. I was, now I was a hippie. I was really broke. I was just you know, sleeping outside. And so I went back to New Jersey. I took a, uh, lived with my parents. I took a job in a factory, first factory, first job, stupid factory. They didn't want my, my brain. They only wanted my body to move some stuff around, which allowed me all day with my own head as soon as i took the job literally the day i took the job i flipped pages on a calendar i found a date almost at random circled that one september 15th and on that day i'm going to be gone i'm going to fly to europe and so i came home from work every day i I was a hippie i wasn't a great worker (laughs) but you're probably about as good of a worker as you were a student yeah, that's right. That's right. So, but I, when the alarm clock went off, I was inclined to like just hit the snooze and go back to sleep. I would remind myself September 15th. Okay, okay. That was enough to get me out of bed. Uh, September 15th, grumble, grumble, out in the ice cold, waiting for a bus to go to a factory. And September 15th, okay, okay. And then I get to the time clock, to punch in the time clock at the factory. And I every time say September 15th, punch that clock. And then work all day. And when I came home at night, I just wanted to save the money. I didn't want to go out in the bars in New Jersey with my friends and spend the money. It's going to be a much more interesting money on Crete than it is going to be in a New Jersey bar tonight. You know? So I had to I had to stay home at night. I needed to not spend money because I wasn't being paid that much and I needed all of it. I got this idea. When I was nine years old, some kids could take a yo-yo, nine-year-old, and they could loop the loop and rock the cradle and round the world. They go all these yo-yo tricks. When I was nine, I wasn't one of those kids. I could I could loop the loop, but I couldn't, you know, I wasn't one of those kids. 
But now I'm 21, 22 years old. I can figure out a yo-yo. Come on. I'm smarter. I'm more coordinated. I got a yo-yo and turned it intentionally into an obsession. So when I came home from the factory, I would spend the rest of the night trying to figure out all these yo-yo tricks. And my father, my father was like, come on, you're 21. You got a yo-yo Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> but I got really good with it. I could do all the tricks, all the tricks that I, that I knew about, I was able to do. And then, and then I got bored because you know it was a yo-yo. <laughs> I was twenty-one. So, so, but but it was a good plan. It was a good plan. It kept me home. I had an obsession, so I needed some other. And I thought of what else? What other skill toy is there? Oh, oh, those wooden paddles with the elastic and the red ball. Babbity 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 babbity. You just hit it over and babbity babbity. Six hundred was my record. Babbity babbity. Six hundred. Yeah, my father was. Hang on a second. So not only were you corded enough to do it that many times in a row, but you also counted as you went. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. To six <laughs> hundred. That's right. That's impressive on a number of fronts. My father was like, come on, this thing's really stupid. Go back to the yo-yo. <laughs> <laughs> he was not amused. <laughs> but it kept me home, right? So, And then I got bored. And then I thought of a friend of mine in college. She, she used to smoke cigarettes. And, then, and sometimes she'd put cigarette smoke into bubbles. My friend Rory, uh, Rory Austin. And uh, so oh, smoke into bubbles. Maybe I'll get some bubbles. And then, yeah, but what do you do with bubbles, really? I mean... I guess I don't know. Make like a big one, I guess, and then, and then after that, what do you do? You make, I guess, a bigger one. Yeah. You know. so, well, it doesn't sound like much, but okay, I'll get I'll get some bubbles until I can think of something else, another skill toy. I want to pause. I want to pause right here because this is a pivotal part of the entire story, right? <laughs> this is where you stumbled across this thing, and and your your friend was the first one to show it to you. That's right. And do you have any idea where she came up with the idea? Was she just sitting around one day and blowing bubbles and smoking a cigarette and decided to combine the two? I don't know that. Okay. I don't know that. But she wasn't the only one. I've sent, Years later, I found out that Mark Twain used to put uh, tobacco smoke into bubbles to amuse his daughters. No kidding. Right. <laughs> okay. Well, it's one of the more magical things that comes out of idle time, right? You know, idle time can produce some really bad things. But it can also produce some really magical things. And this is one of those examples. That was it. That's it. So, yeah. So, I came home every night, played with the bubbles, and my intent was only to make a big one, and then a bigger one, and then a bigger one. And actually, you know, t- today, uh, jump forward here. Today, there were a number of people doing uh, these tricks that I invented. Uh, a number of, there were, there, some people who know the internet better than I do tell me there are thousands of people in Asia and Eastern Europe who are making their living doing, and they've learned how to do these tricks. But I think they have a disadvantage in that they had seen me first. And so they knew that there were bubble tricks. And then they aimed to do a cube-shaped bubble. They aim to do the volcano bubble, the caterpillar, bu- these things, and they're they're in, and, and they and they found a path to that trick that that was their intent, their aim. I had no idea of any tricks. There was nothing, and that led to me knowing the bubbles rather than the trick. And, and, and my hands got so – I just spent so much time at this that my hands just work. <laughs> and that came from all of that time spent in the factory with, with no intent of just trying to hold the bubble. They, they're not a weight that we're used to. They're slippery. They're not an object that we know how to catch, that we know how to treat. But my everything became so good because I spent so much time <laughs> night after night after night after night just trying to blow a big bubble hold it in front of my face and then watch it until it popped the colors the reflection of my face in kind of a funhouse way on the front surface and inverted on the back side of the other the other face also with this colors running through and i was just watch the, the beauty the astounding beauty of a soap bowl <laughs> was worth it in and of itself but in the effort to do that, to hold it, I got really good at building it, making it, holding it, catching it when it fell, bringing it back to where I was. All those skills developed without any intent to do a trick. It, it was driven only by your curiosity. 
Yeah, and 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 the beauty. I'm a, I'm a hippie. It's the '70s. The colors are so beautiful, man. <laughs> you know? And so I'm staring through this bubble. And my father, meanwhile, is in the living room. He's given up on you know on me. He's not even going to say anything anymore. But he's just sitting there watching the the TV. And in those days, there was this new thing that happened when they had the weather on. They would give you a satellite view. They used to have satellite, still satellite photos of weather systems. But this time, they they would do what they called, now let's put it in motion. It's, it's normal today. But it was a series of photos. And you would see that storm turning, curling, and coming our way, you know, on the weather map, New York uh, TV uh, weather report. And then I watched through the bubble i've been staring at the movement of these colors the different colors on a bubble turns out are different thicknesses of soap film the fluid dynamics that determines the, the motions that are having those swirls those paisleys and and i looked through the bubble and that weather system was doing the same thing the same kinds of motion and i and i, I just into it i got it i got it. the atmosphere the troposphere which is where all of our weather happens, all the moisture is, uh, the layer. Um, it's varying thicknesses of or densities of fluid, of water, water vapor. And it's, and its motion and its relationships were identical in shape and motion to what happens on soap bubbles. They act the way this universe acts. This is really, they're doing it at a very, very basic. They're not life. They're not complicated. So they're showing us some of the basic rules of how this thing goes. When you watch your act today and you're doing all these different bubble forms, how much of that were you in the process of discovering during this time that you're describing? Were you blowing smoke into them? How many forms had you come up with? How, how quickly did this evolve? Uh, well, uh, so that initial thing, uh, when I took the job and I set the date for quitting working in that factory, that was 10 months. That was a little block of time where I said, okay, to hell with me for the next 10 months, I'm just going to stop going out, stop going to concerts, stop going to demonstrate. I'm just going to stay home every night just to hell with me. I'm just going to save the money. So that was just a, a stolen block of time from my life. I was just going to – and I and I filled that with the, with the bubble pursuits. Um, during that time I developed, yeah, I put smoke into the bubbles. Then I found out I could let the smoke out and it, and a whole stream of smoke as the bubble deflated and the smoke got pushed up and out. Um, I called that the volcano bubble. And I, I found out I could bounce a bubble. You know, I mean, we, we all know how delicate they are. Everything breaks bubbles. They're so delicate and everything that touches them breaks them. And then I realized that wasn't true. But it took me a long time to see it. it I, actually, yeah, if they touched the skin, they broke it. They touched the wood of the furniture, they broke it. If they touched the leather of the chair, they broke it. If they touched the stuffed chair, the cloth, they bounced off of that, the arm of that chair. What? What? What happened? And then it went down on the carpet, and it sat on the carpet for a little while before it broke. So some things break bubbles, and some things don't. So after a while, when I started noticing that, I said, well, I wonder if I could bounce it on this shirt. And it, it didn't work. It, it broke it. So I tried a different shirt, and that bounced it. I had a trick. I can bounce bubbles. I can bounce a smoke bubble, and then I can grab it and do the volcano with it. Ooh, that would gather me a crowd on weekends when I went to uh, New York City uh, to do my street shows. <laughs> so I had a couple of tricks. I'd string them together just as a way of gathering a crowd for the, this other show I had. How far into this before you started going out and doing street shows? I'd been out to California before I went to, back to New Jersey to work in this factory and stuff. I'd been to California. I started writing puppet plays. It, I don't know. It, came, it poured out into the paper with, with stage directions in it. It was like the muse was just handing me some stuff. Just all the, And I had puppet plays. I, for the, the characters, the dialect was written into what came out on the page. It was just incomplete. I had these puppet plays. And, uh, and a friend of mine oddly enough rory uh osman the same one who would put smoke in the bubbles rory when i saw her she was living in brooklyn i knew her from college in memphis but she lived in brooklyn and i said rory what are you doing she said uh i'm making puppets and selling them on the street in the village what are you doing i said i'm writing puppet plays <laughs> really <laughs> yeah pure coincidence pure coincidence or you know for the people that, that go that way but for me it was it was, just, it was just handed to me so okay so i went with her to the village 
and and we'd sell her puppets and then she gave me some puppets and and on the streets i would do my puppet plays to gather a crowd to sell her puppets to them <laughs> wow and uh, so and that was my show. And then later when I wasn't with her, I'd go to Central Park or I'd go to uh, St. Mark's Place or I'd be wherever I'd go in, in the city. On weekends, I'd do my show. Past the hat, I wasn't making any real money, but I was working in the factory. I was okay. I just wanted to try these out on an audience. And so I wasn't very good at that. I was terrible at gathering a crowd. <laughs> That's a skill street performers have to have. Yeah. You kind of have to channel your, your inner P.T. Barnum, right? That would be good if you have one. If you have that inside, you you ought to pull that out. I never did; it just didn't work. But I did find that if I could bounce a smoke bubble from arm to, I didn't even have to look at them. I would that would gather a crowd, and then I would do the volcano. The bubble deflates; the the smoke goes out of it, and it had this. It still does has this beautiful response. It's kind of like. It's a little bit like a laugh. It's a laugh. It's a letting out of their breath. But it's kind of a ooh at the same time. <laughs> it's an odd sound. It's not and, – and, but they made it collectively. When they made one sound together, for me, that's an audience. I never had a problem with an audience. And so as soon as they, they made that one sound, I said, hey, now, folks, I'm not in the travel of puppets, political, social, and spiritual satire with puppets. This is my hippie puppets backpack on his back, you know, and I go right into it. I was fine, but the bubbles eventually came into that show. And as I did more and more stuff indoors, I could do it, but it didn't enter the street show. But eventually, when I got myself indoors out of the, out of the wind, it took over the show. In 1980, you appeared on Charles Kralt's show, On the Road. Oh, is that 80? Okay. Then in 1983, you were on That's Incredible, which was a magical show as a child that I remember. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that same year, you were on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. So the most obvious question is, how did you go from the situation you just described to getting on television? Yeah, and 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 the really weird part of that is you, you just talk, you're right. That's that's the chronological sequence, and none of them were related to the other. The people from that's incredible when they called me, they didn't know that I'd been on Charles Kuralt. Uh And when the Tonight Show found me, they'd been looking for me as long as that's incredible had been looking. They they heard about there was a guy. There's a guy. He's in California. He's Santa Cruz. He does bubbles. I was a street performer here. I was living in my van. I didn't have a phone. I, I was disconnected from the world of show business. Um, but I became a rumor to them, They told, as they told me afterwards. Um, Hang on a second, because you, you've left a gap there, because where we left off was is you were performing in Central Park in New York. Yeah, yeah, good point. Uh, yeah, so Central Park in New York, saving money to go to Europe, um, 10 months working in that factory, quit the job, went to Europe, carried a whole bunch of bubble jars with me because I don't know how their stuff is going to be when I get there. And uh, and I did shows on the streets there, my puppet shows. I lived on Crete for eight months. I I wrote new puppet plays. Uh, I loved that Crete. I loved the, the Greek. And then and then I went to the, the UK. And then because my puppets, you know, they had to understand English well for my political satire to make any sense. So... Uh, and I spent six months in the UK. I picked apples for a while. I picked potatoes to get money to come home. Um, and doing shows on the streets down at Portobello Market and Hyde Park Corner and passing the hat. Um, yeah, and, and, and one of the good things is that <laughs> I was, like I said, not a very good street performer. The result was I made very little. I made, you know, quarters in America and, and small coins when I passed the hat. I wasn't one of these guys that could really big circle crowd and then hit the crowd and get all these dollar bills from them. I was living on these quarters. I call that a good thing in that it forced me to do a lot of shows. <laughs> Those guys, the quarters had to build up to like cover me tonight, you know. And so I would start early. I'd go to the park, and then later on, I'd go to the cafe or restaurant if they'd let me, and I'd pass the hat to the. And then later, I'd go to the bars, and when the bars closed, I'd go to the all night donut shop. <laughs> you know, I wasn't making a lot of money, so I was mostly running the thing on caffeine instead of protein. <laughs> um, 
but I but I got really good during that time. I really got better at working the crowd, playing, even got better at gathering a crowd, but I never got really good. But I got better at all the aspects of it and certainly could move from one play to the other. Okay, that's doing too many. I lost the crowd before I finished it. Honing the, the act, you know. Uh, and eventually, uh, I had to come home and so i but i had i did the same thing i'd done to get the money to go i i uh i i picked apples picked potatoes got the money flew home to new jersey took a job in a factory set a date for quitting that thing had worked the last time and uh this time the goal was to get a car get myself out to california and try and see if i could do something with puppetry see see if i could become a performer out west so at what point are you're performing in europe did you decide this has run its course? I need to head back. What was your motivation to do that? That when following Christmas, when Christmas was coming close, I thought I wanted to go home see my mom at Christmas. So I worked toward that, and then and then again took a job, worked in the factory, and saved my money and got what I what I thought I would need to go out of California. And I don't know what happened in California. They have show business, right? I don't know. Probably I'll end up. I don't know. I didn't have a good plan. I was just going to get myself out out there. I didn't really want to live in Southern California where actual show business exists. But I got to San Francisco area and I did shows on the streets. The thing is, though, these coastal places that I prefer, I really like having the ocean nearby, uh, are always windy. You know, (laughs) the wind's either coming in or it's going out, you know. uh, So... Bubbles on the, as a street performer was as Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco, a noted place for street performers. That was great. I'd hang out with those guys. I saw the best ones doing their work. I'd hang. We'd go to the cafes. I'd show them bubble magic. They were really impressed. The puppets were good, but I wasn't that great of a street performer there. So I started organizing indoor shows. I, I'd get a cafe or I'd, I'd, I'd rent a hall. I worked with another guy and we'd get a, a juggler and a girl singer and a thing over and a guy that could do. And we'd put together a variety show that I would MC, And in the MC, and then I would end up doing bubbles and puppets and then present all these acts. And all that was just because I didn't really have an evening's entertainment of my own. So I would put it together with all these other people. Mostly it was to get me out of the wind. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. You had the one act that doesn't work outdoors in California. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> but you came up with a really resourceful idea. You became a show organizer, a variety show organizer. That's right. That's right. And I've used that a lot since. And then, and then you know, San Francisco had a real a thriving comedy scene. So there were all these comedy clubs, and they had their open mic nights and stuff. And so I started going to those. Um, and... It, and nothing happened. I, you know, I, I would go to. They loved having me at the open mic nights. Open mic, <laughs> open mic night at a comedy club can be pretty grim. There are lots of people. There's some. Some are really good. They everybody's got to come up that way. But you know, a bulk of them will be like not very good, or you know, kind of dark, kind of psych, psychodrama. Well, also, it ends up being uh, comics, uh, aspiring comics doing comedy in front of other comics. Yeah, that's it. You're you're all sitting around in front of a very small crowd waiting to do your your five minutes. Exactly. If they let you into the club where the comedy is, sometimes the comics got to wait outside, like Rick Newman's Catch a Rising Star. They wouldn't even let us into the room, but we'd hang out with each other at the bar uh, to, before we'd go in and and yeah, trade stories and talk about comedy and uh, um, yeah. So so I was I was doing that, but finally I, I asked because now. My act was really tight. It was really good. And I no longer had some nights where it didn't work. It always worked. I had it tight. I could do my time, you know. And But nonetheless, nobody was booking me, even for a Thursday night where they pay a little bit of money. They kept asking me. And I was always welcome at the open mics. And and uh, and got applause and got appreciation and then but then I talked to the owner of one of the clubs and I said what's going on why is nobody hiring me he said well you know Tom everybody likes you you're a nice guy you know but yeah you're not really comedy what do you what do you mean I'm not, I mean I'm on stage they're laughing I got the but the puppet time I've got one bit that's built around Abbott and Costello's who's on first I've got I mean it's rich it's comedy based on. But but actually, I do know what he meant. It wasn't 
wasn't the same pace. It wasn't the same boxing match that a lot of stand-up comedy was back then. They're looking for, you know, that Robin Williams had started out in their clubs and now he's up on top. Uh, you know, Ruby Goldberg had been in San Francisco. Now it's, she's up. And, and they kind of, they're looking for something that's like what's on top. That's what happens at the lower ends of show business. They're looking for things that are like Steve Martin, who's hot right now, prop comic, you know, or something uh so and i wasn't i wasn't it like anything i was this odd oddly paced got laughs but th- when the guy said it i don't think he thought it through he said you're not really comedy well i'm i'm not something i get that but i am comedy this is comedy <laughs> you know that's you get on stage and when you get off and they laughed and they felt better that that was comedy but he said you're not really comedy so i gave up the comedy clubs and then I ended up down in uh, Santa Cruz, kind of a uh, big college town uh, down on the uh, Monterey Bay. And, um, lots of hippies like me. I guess I'm, I'm this long-haired guy. I've been on the streets for a long time. And, and so I, hang, and I became a street performer here on, on the streets and became some notoriety on the streets. Um, and then I had been going to the uh, San Francisco Exploratorium. It's a science center, the first of the hands-on science centers like they do at the everywhere in the world now new york hall of science all of them became like the exploratorium hands-on science and i used to hang there and i I, these science guys loved what was happening with bubbles and they told me about the physics of it and and i I learned some of that didn't really change anything in my act it's just but i learned why what i was seeing worked you know what those colors were different thicknesses of soap film and uh, what the angles were, always 120-degree angles where the three walls meet. And so I learned some stuff, but again, it didn't change the act anyway. Um, and then I was doing a couple of shows at the Exploratorium where we would do my show and then talk about the science and take questions about the how-to and the physics. And then Charles Corralt, he was just kind of finding Americana, you know. So he came upon me and uh, and did a little thing about the bubble man in San Francisco, the, the, this hippie bubble character. But it came and went. Nothing really happened in show business with that. Later, I was back east. I went into Tenants, the biggest magic store in the world in Times Square. A friend of mine was buying one of the flying Karamazov brothers, who were also street performers who then ended up on Broadway and Hollywood films and stuff. So he's buying something in Tannin, some magic equipment. And I'd never been into a big magic store before. So I went over, I'm talking to some, one of the guys behind the counter. Uh, and I asked him, cause I'd heard, I'd met magicians by then. And I said, do you have multiplying bubbles? There is a thing. It's, it's a trick that you usually see called multiplying billiard balls, but they, there's a version where it looks like it's a bubble that's multiplying in the guy's hand. And he's, and the guy behind the counter said, no, you're right. I haven't seen that in years. Yeah, we don't have that. Uh, maybe Abbott has it. Yeah. And I said, well, what about the thing with the bubble with the dental dam? And he said, no, nah, no, I never heard of it. And, and, and I'm asking him all these questions about things people have told me about magic illusions with bubbles. Um, and finally he said, what, what is it? Everything's bubbles with you? What are you talking? What are you, everything's bubbles? <laughs> I bet he sounded exactly like that too, didn't he? Yeah, you bet. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, uh, I said, yeah, uh, you know, I do this thing. Oh well, here I'll, I'll show you. I always had some juice with me, so I bent down, I got the bubble juice, and I took it out, and I started doing some bubble tricks to show this guy, which boom turned into a bubble show for everybody who was all the magicians in front of the counter, behind the counter. They all came over and they gathered, and and so that inspired me to keep going. I did bubble trick after bubble trick. And somebody got on the intercom and called uh, Tony Spina. You want to come out and see this guy? Tony was the big guy in the back. Tony came out. And when it was all finished, Tony pulls me into the office. You don't talk to those guys. Come with me. (laughs) 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 Takes me into the room. And he wants to book me for this big magic convention that they do once a year, the Tenants Jubilee. And it's, it's in a couple of weeks. And uh, they don't really have any money. Of course. <laughs> the, the budget's all spent. Uh, um, and now nah, I'm living in my van. I've got my girlfriend with me. We're heading out west pretty soon. We've been back east for a while. Her, her, she's from New York, so we visit her mom. But we're, we're heading back out west. And he, two weeks now, we can't stay for two weeks now. And he, but he's telling me about the, all these named magicians. I don't really know 
the magic world. The names don't mean anything to me. And he's, he, he's trying to convince me because it's really prestigious thing. And I don't know. I don't know. We got it. We got it. And then he said, it's, it's at the Browns Hotel. Well, the Browns Hotel, that's that's the Catskill Mountain Resorts, these Jewish uh, summer resorts where all the comedians, they called it the Borscht Belt. When I was younger and I watched Johnny Carson, I watched all these comedians being interviewed, Jerry Lewis, Shecky Green, Myron Cohen with his stories, all these uh, Woody Allen, all these people started, Alan King, all the all these comedians started playing in the Borscht Belt. Uh, and the Browns, that was one of the one of the places and it's still in existence and they're going to have their convention there. And I said, you mean I could play on the stage at the Browns hotel? And he said, well, well, yeah, is that good? (laughs) Yeah. Now now, now you found something. Now, now I'm interested. You have my attention, sir. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah. So without money, but uh, all the meals are covered. I said, but my girl will cover your girlfriend too. No problem. Wow. And so, we did. We hung out for two weeks. We went to the Browns Hotel. We went there, and, and I performed. Actually, he was smart. He told me, "Listen, you get there on the Thursday. You got all Thursday and Friday, and then Saturday. Saturday night, you get a big surprise for the Saturday night show." So the thing is, magicians are showing tricks to each other. You can go to the rooms. You can go to the shows. You can, no problem. You can go to everything, but don't show anything. You're the surprise on Saturday night. Oh, what a great idea! Yeah, that was smart. That was smart. It was kind of fun for me. I had the medallion that showed them that I'm I'm among the, I'm one of them. It's okay. So magicians are like showing me tricks and then telling me how they did it. <laughs> I'm not a magician. I didn't come up through magic. I'm really no. You really use mirrors? I had no idea. <laughs> and I'm just hanging with these guys. But and some of them told me afterwards. You know, they really wondered about me because I didn't look like them. I arrived. My band had kind of broke, and I had to fix it. I arrived with grease on me, and my girlfriend didn't dress right. And <laughs> so, question about the interaction with the other magicians because they're all showing each other tricks. Yeah. Did they ever say what do you got? Uh, well, not really. They weren't people. Kind of did it themselves, you know. But but they would show me. So so some guy showed me a, a card trick, and he said, "You know how to do that?" And I'd say, "No." He said, "Okay, you start with the with the double lift. You know the double lift, right?" And I'd say, "No." <laughs> and, I, and I watched the guy like look at my medallion. I've got the medallion. It says I belong here, you know. And and they, they told me after that, I was like, oh, man, doesn't even know the double lift. What the hell? <laughs> it's kind of a basic thing in magic. They all Who's the that. amateur? <laughs> but I'm hanging in them, and I'm kind of not really in, you know, in the bosom, buddy. Them, they're all pals on some level, um, and I'm not. I'm kind of on the outside, me and my. But we're watching and we're learning some stuff until I walk out on Saturday night in the, in the show and tore their heads off. <laughs> they just, I'm, I'm, I'm a really good act for magicians. Do you remember where in the lineup you went? Did you go near the beginning or near the end? Were you the? Where did you fall? No, I was. I think I was. I think I was. A, if there was an intermission, anyway, half. I was in the second half. Okay. The real, the, the the other big act in that show in the in that convention was this young kid. Yeah. You know, at that time, it was uh, it was the seventies, and and all the younger magicians coming up, they were doing it like Doug Henning. Doug sure. Henning, kind of hippie magician, floating, and the colors, and the mustache, and the, the rainbow thing, and hippie, and, and it was, and it was very nice. But in that convention, there was this other guy that came, young guy out of Kentucky, and he did a classical act. He was in a tuxedo, and he made doves appear, and he had cigarettes, and he put it out, and it was still there, and he put it out, and it was still there, and doves, and then, and then doves, and, he, and his makeup reminded you of Dracula. He was It was like the opposite of Doug Henning, but it was really classic, old magic like we haven't seen in, in our lifetime, and and uh, that was that guy was Lance Burton. No kidding. He was just this hip guy from Kentucky telling me stories. On stage, he was dun-dun. <laughs> it was wonderful. Um, and then one time, I had no idea. I, was me- I don't know who the people were, but I was meeting all these really named guys. Did you know that uh, Johnny Carson started out doing magic? Yes. Yes, I knew that. And Johnny, for the same reason that these magicians... <laughs> They see something else when they see what I do. Most people, when they first see what I do with bubbles, their first reaction is, oh, my God, I didn't know bubbles could do that. (laughs) Right. Most all magicians, when they first see 
what I do with Bubbles. The first reaction is, oh, my God, look at the time he has spent with Bubbles. They know exactly what they're looking at. This is the result of time spent. They know how long it took them to roll a a 50-cent piece around in their fingers until it looked like it was an easy thing to do. (laughs) That's, That's time. It, and, and and most people don't see it because it's supposed to look easy. They don't. They can't imagine uh, a juggler. It can, does it, it's a ball trick. It's just got a joke to it. But they just invested so much time. And the, and the magicians saw that as soon as they saw me, they went, huh. they'd never seen a bubble trick before. And here was a bubble act. And, and I didn't come up through the magic world. That's what usually happens. Some kid comes up with a new concept. He's going to tear up a piece of paper until it's really tiny. And then when he goes to unfold it, it's a butterfly that flies out. So it's a new idea in magic. He goes to some magic convention when he's 14. And he shows that. He's not perfected it, but he shows it. By the, in a couple of years, the, all these named guys are doing that trick. It's like 12 guys doing it, and they're selling it. <laughs> but uh, I, I didn't come up through magic. So I, they didn't see the beginning of a thing. They saw a completed thing, and they never see that. There was this bubble act. Somebody later called from That's Incredible. They called a magician who said, who asked them, is there anything you know incredible in the magic world these days? And that guy told him, there was a guy that showed up at Tenon's Jubilee. He did a thing with soap bubbles we've never seen before. It's uh, But nobody knows him. He's, his name is Tom Noddy. He lives in Santa Cruz, and he does bubble magic. That's all they knew. Nobody had a dress. Nobody had my card. Nobody had any. Well, that, that makes me want to ask you a question in the middle here. Yes. Uh, when did you become Tom Noddy? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um. When I first came to California, so that was 75, okay. um, I've been carrying the name around with me for – actually, I was carrying the term around. I read it in The Hobbit. Tom, Tom Noddy was one word, Tom Noddy. And in, in The Hobbit, uh, Bilbo Baggins was trying to distract the spiders who had captured the dwarves. He had them all webbed up. The, you know, the spiders had them webbed up. He wanted to help them escape, and he had a plan. He would – yell at the spiders, throw rocks at the spiders, and call them names, insult them, and get them to chase him. And then they didn't know. He'd slip on the invisible ring. He'd double back. He'd help his friends escape. Um, but among the things he did was he called them names. He called them Adder Cop, Tom Noddy. Tom Noddy, one word. And then Tolkien explained, oh, yeah, Adder Cop is something that spiders don't like to be called. They really don't like that. Piss them off. Uh, and then, of course, Tom Noddy is insulting to anybody. What I loved was that little of course. Wait, 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 wait. Like everyone should know that. Yeah. Didn't Tolkien just make these two terms up? <laughs> and, and the first one he explained to us, and the second one he didn't even bother explaining. He pretended that we already knew it. I don't need to tell you that. You already knew that. I thought that was brilliant. That is brilliant. That is a way of sucking people down further into your world. Assume them into your world. Assume they're already there. Tell them they already know this. <laughs> yeah, that's that is brilliant. But let me ask you a question about that because because you didn't really need a stage name. It's not like you were John Dusseldorf that became John Denver. You were Tom McAllister, which is a perfectly easy to remember right. acceptable stage name. Why why adopt a stage name? Just because you liked it? Yeah. Well, I wasn't looking for a stage name. And it was certainly not bad. this is when I was in college. You know? I saw that thing. Mm-hmm. long before I was a performer or looking for a name, but I saw that thing and I, I, I carried it in my head and and when I was writing my political satire plays and stuff, I would sometimes intentionally incorporate things like that. I would do that thing that I saw Tolkien do. I would assume that my audience agrees oh. with me, that it's nonsense to develop breeder nuclear reactors when we don't even know where we're going to bury the, or how we're going to protect, you know. So I would assume... And when they laughed at the punchline at the end, they kind of confirmed that they already agreed with me. <laughs> I would assume them into agreement with my political position. And then and then I'd build it around a joke, which elicits a laugh just because jokes do. And it was almost their confirmation of this thing that I assumed on them. However, when I got to California and I chose Tom Noddy, oh, I was Tom McAllister. I'll be Tom Noddy. So everybody knew it was a new place. I just introduced myself as Tom Noddy to everybody. And I was Tom Noddy for a while. And then a friend of mine looked in a thesaurus 
for uh, for the terms that were used for a fool, and one of them was Tom Noddy. Oh, you're kidding me. It's an archaic British expression for a fool. Tolkien did not invent anything. <laughs> he really was. He was being honest. I invented that. <laughs> that is to say, I misunderstood what I was reading. Interesting. And now I'm calling myself this. I really got it wrong. And then I realized, oh, that was kind of foolish, wasn't it? Well, okay. <laughs> it's foolish to call that. yourself a fool. I'll just stick with it then, right? It still fits. Yeah. <laughs> I got it all wrong. And now I'm Tom Nutty. <laughs> you know, sure. While, while being foolish, I ended up with a clever concept that I applied in other situations. I don't know if anybody else does that, but. Okay. So you, you had some success. You got called by That's Incredible. How did they finally get a hold of you, and where did that go? That wasn't easy, right? So they knew Tom Noddy, Bubble Magic, Santa Cruz. So they called Telephone Information. People today don't know. If, they, if, you, if you were born during the Internet era, it doesn't, you have no idea how disconnected we were from each other, how disconnected we were from each other in those days. So he called Telephone Information for Santa Cruz, and asked, do you have a number for Tom Noddy? And she said, no. Oh, uh, do you have a, a, a number for uh, Bubble Magic? And she said, no. He said, oh, uh, do, you, do you have a number? This is, this is uh, Alan Landsberg Productions. Uh, that's incredible. Uh, do you have a number for Bubble Show? She said, no. Do you have Bubble anything? <laughs> do you have any phone numbers related to anything Bubble related? That was smart because she said, well, there's the Bubble Cafe, which is nothing. It's old diner down on Pacific Avenue, you know. But I know it's funny it, when locals who know that I'm the Bubble guy see me sitting in the Bubble Cafe. So I go there. I'm a regular. I know Lupe Chavez, the owner. I breakfast there. I hang out there. I put my posters up if I've got something booked. You know, so they called the Bubble Cafe. They got Lupe. You did have a loose connection to the Bubble Cafe. Yeah. So they call, They got Lupe, and Lupe said, no, yeah, no, I know the guy. Yeah, that's incredible. I watched that show, man. So next time I'm walking down the street, Lupe comes running out and says, Tom, Tom, look, hit this, hit this guy, call this guy. They want to put you on TV, man. I watched that show. <laughs> so uh, so I, they end up coming up to Santa Cruz, and they want to meet me at my house. <laughs> I'm living in my van. I don't want them to see that. They're going to offer me no money at all, you know. But I told him, okay, tell you what, why don't we meet at the Bubble Cafe? Oh, okay, that's funny. We'll do that. So we're sitting in the Bubble Cafe. And and he's he's going through everything. It's it's the concept. It's really, this is just Burbank, man. This is Hollywood. It's, and the concept and the piece. And, and apparently, the way he's describing it to me, apparently there's Alan Landsberg Productions. But within that, he is like my guy. He's working for me within the production company. So he's on my side. Oh, good, good. I got me, and I'm thinking, yeah, right. <laughs> That's probably how it works. This company down in LA sends me somebody, and they, they're going to help. He's going to help me negotiate. So, anyway, whatever. But he's a nice guy, and so we're talking. And I said, uh, he finally, he's the concept. I'm in agreement. I have no problem. The piece, yeah, yeah, whatever. And uh, with the, and then finally, he's finished. And I said, well, yeah, okay. Uh, how about the money? Are you, are you the one I talked to? Oh. Oh, Tom. Oh, I'm sorry, Tom. Um, I, I think you don't understand. We, we don't pay. Oh, man. Um, you, you do it for exposure. And I said, yeah, you know you can die from exposure? <laughs> <laughs> and he laughed. He laughed. Oh, yeah, I get it. But, uh, but actually, no, see, people see you. You know, I know what exposure is. I'm saying, <laughs> I'm saying, and I decided, okay, look, he's, he's got me pretending that I believe he represents me. So, okay, let's stay with that. So I decided to confide in him because he's like my guy, you know? So I said, you know what? They are going to pay. In fact, I am like such a perfect act for that show. They're going to pay a lot. Oh, uh, what, 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 what do you mean, Tom? Yeah, right. Um, okay, well, that's, that's a good how, – what, what how much did you have in mind? Yeah. Okay, that's a great question because I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, 
I'm doing the streets. If somebody puts $5 in the hat, I think that's a lot. And now what I want is a lot, but I don't know what it means. I saw a thing on, uh, I know it's going to be more than $5, but I saw a thing in the, in the newspaper that said uh, Robert De Niro, his last movie, made $43 million. Yeah. So I figured, okay, it's probably less than that. <laughs> somewhere between $5 and $43 million. Exactly, somewhere yeah. between those. So and I really have no idea what they would pay for this. And so, but I did all this before I'm talking to the guy, right? I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to talk to the guy. And when it comes to money, well, here's what I do know. I know that I don't know enough to bargain, to horse trade, you know, well, maybe halfway between your number and my number. I don't even, I don't know enough. So my thing is going to be, I'm going to come up with a number. I don't know what, but when I come up with a number, I'm not going up and down. I'm staying with that number, period. And I want a lot, but I don't know what a lot is, so I have to figure that out. But whatever I come up with, that's my number. So how much is a lot? How much is a lot? How much is a lot? I have no idea. No idea. And I finally, my my, my show business experience was nil. I had nothing that could help me. So I, I decided to think something else. And what I thought was... Okay, Tom, what's a lot of money to you? I, I, I borrowed $2,000 to go to college. $2,000, that's a lot of money. Then I realized, that's it. That's my number. That's a lot of money. That's what I want. I want a lot. I'll, I'll charge them this lot of money that I've never paid back to them. I'll charge them 2000 bucks. So so the guy. So now I'm with the guy, and he said, well, what did you have in mind? And I said, 2000 He's all, oh, oh, Tom, come on, Tom, 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 Tom. And I'm going, no, no, that's it. That's my number. Now I'm not budging. I got my number. I'm not, but 2000 that's it, two grand. They'll pay it. Well, Tom, I don't know. I was gonna, <laughs> Finally, he says, look, if you want, I could call it in and see what they asked. I said, yeah, that's a good idea. Why don't you call it in? They didn't have cell phones yet then. We had to go outside on the sidewalk. There's a pay phone. And he called in. He's talking to some guy for a while. He finally hands the phone to me. He says, uh, and I say 2000 The guy says, oh, Tom, apparently this guy is also on my side. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so so this guy is Tom, Tom. <laughs> and I said, no, 2000 That's enough. And he said, look, if you want, I could take it to the meeting. But I don't think, I said, take it to the meeting. See, this is good. And I, said, I literally said to him, I said, see, I'm learning something here. This is my first uh, contract here. So. Uh, what you want to do? I'm going to write this down. First, you want to call it in, and then what did you just say? Uh, take the, yeah, take it to the meeting. Why don't you take it to the meeting? <laughs> <laughs> they laugh. They know I'm teasing by now, but but they're also going to take it to the meeting. So a few days later, they they contact me, and they agreed. They agreed two grand. Except they said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pay you two hundred and fifty dollars, which is the union minimum, as your fee. But we're going to give you all the rest of the two thousand dollars. We're going to give that to you as expenses. Oh, That's smart! It's it's good for our taxes. It's good for your taxes. And I'm thinking, I don't have any taxes. This yeah. is the only money I'm making all year. You know. Yeah, you didn't exactly have a tax burden at that time. <laughs> not at all. So, but anyway, why not? I still get the two grand, right? Yeah, yeah, you get two grand, no problem, Tom. We just it's just had to do the paperwork. And I'm thinking. I don't get this one. I mean, I could get screwed on this because I don't, I don't. And then I'm thinking, you know, Tom, you're doing really good for your first contract <laughs> ever. <laughs> you're doing really good. Now they're going to pay the fee and the two grand. Uh, and you know what? Probably I could get screwed on this thing. But you know what? Probably on your first contract, you probably should be screwed. <laughs> so It's like a rite of passage. Yeah. So I'll take a beating on whatever this thing is. Cause if it's, if I'm right, if they're trying to screw me, I'll take a beating and that way I'll learn, you know? So I agreed to it. And I, I love telling this story to young performers backstage nowadays because nobody can figure it out. Why not? You get the two grand anyway. What the, how did they screw you? It's, you get two, it's residuals. When they sell that episode, um, Overseas, when they said when they re-air it, uh, when they saw in Canada, where every time they do, the union sees to it that the performer gets a percentage of their fee, Ooh. <laughs> not their one-time expenses. 
So for many years, I would get like these $12 checks from Alan Landsberg Productions because, you know, it's a percentage of my 200 uh, bucks <laughs> instead of $300, which would be a percentage of my $2,000 fee. No, no, that was expenses. That's one time. You don't get that again. That sounds like a 5% residual to me. Is that it? Uh, yeah, I didn't do the math. I just went, okay. Yeah, 5% of 250 bucks is $12.50. There we go. That's Those are the checks I got. Got a bunch of them. <laughs> so now they sold it in Oman. Now they sold it in, you know, all over the Middle East, all over the, Latin America. They sold the clip. <laughs> right. And then they sent you 5%. That's it. So that was pretty smart. Yeah, and, you know, smart. and it was worth it. It was worth uh, Although I have to say, I never once got a single gig. I, that show, they, they made two episodes out of the, the, the footage that they shot. And I made them pay a second time for the second one. But I never got a single call, not a gig, nothing, ever. Because that 40 million people were watching that thing. Nobody ever called and, got, and booked me for that. No kidding. And I did the Tonight Show, and the phone went crazy, and there were agents, and there were managers, and there were people who managed my agents, and they were, <laughs> it just went crazy. That's all the time we have for part one with Tom Noddy. Be sure to tune in for part two. We have so much more to discuss. For example, what's it like to perform on the most legendary late night show in television history? Did you know he nearly walked out just before his appearance with David Letterman? How does he do those tricks? What kind of soap does he use? How do you make smoke bubbles if you're not a smoker? Finally, listener questions. Has Tom ever heard of Gravity Beard? Tune into part two to find out. The interview show is a production of Gravity Beard and can be found on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Follow the show on Twitter at TheGBIS or on Facebook by searching The Gravity Beard Interns. Special thanks to Phil Rude, that illustrator guy, for our logo. This is The Interview Show by Gravity Beard. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.